Hello? What do you want? I'd like to place an order. Who would have thought Blinky Lights as a service would have been so popular? Alright, here we go. Today is Monday, November 3rd, 2014, and this is episode 91 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as usual, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Good evening, Jerry, and I think we can call this the Hobbled and Broken Podcast. That's right, and um, you'll probably notice that there isn't any fun stuff at the front or the back of this podcast. I apologize. I am... uh, I've been winged. (laughs) (laughs) He's podcasting one-handed, folks, and you can interpret that any way you like. Oh, jeez. And I'm apparently losing my voice, so if I sound weird tonight, I'm sorry. Weirder than than normal. Yeah, weirder than normal. Um, However, you know, I was thinking about this today. I'm really humbled and honored by the amount of people who choose to spend an hour with us each week. And I really did want to just say thank you. I mean, I had no idea that this would grow to be as popular as it is, and I had no idea that people cared to listen to us, and this was just something fun to do, and um, apparently uh, people uh, find us interesting enough to listen. So that's uh, that's pretty cool, and so thanks. Yep, Absolutely. I'll echo that. Thank you very much. It's uh, it's been it's been quite a wild ride, and there are quite a few of you listening these days. So my my server seems to be keeping up, though. Anyhow, uh, getting into our stories for this evening. Our first one comes from Yahoo News. That might be the first time we've ever used Yahoo News. I think, but the title is J.P. Morgan found hackers through breach of corporate event website. And uh, that I think we covered this breach a couple of a uh, couple of episodes ago, and at the time there weren't a whole lot of details, and you know, there was some uh, consternation about how many people were involved. But here's some interesting new details about the breach, and I always like to follow up with that stuff when we can find it. Uh, as it turns out, apparently, the way this came to light is that. J.P. Morgan sponsors this corporate challenge, which I guess is some kind of a race. I'm not entirely clear about that. And apparently, some of the IDs that uh, that belong to this corporate challenge website were amongst the uh, the multiple billions of user IDs and passwords that uh, Hold Security found. And you will remember that story from a number of months ago, and we talked at length about that. Apparently, uh, Hold Security figured out or somehow tied some of those back to J.P. Morgan's uh, event site. And in the ensuing investigation J.P. Morgan uh, performed, they found that uh, they found some uh, what I would assume are command and control systems. And when they started looking around in their own network... Well, sure enough, they see traffic from their own servers 
to uh, to those same command and control hosts. And uh, there aren't a lot of other details beyond that, except to say this is uh, this is something that I would would like to read verbatim. Quote, the hackers had originally gained access to the bank's network by compromising the computer of an employee with special privileges, had used both at work and at home, and then moved across the bank's network to access contact data, the Wall Street Journal said. Yeah, so that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of says it right there. Similar, similar story to many other, uh, Many other breaches like that. Uh, to me, there's a there's an interesting lesson here. Well, I guess there's two lessons. Number one is, again, if you got special privileges, maybe you shouldn't be doing risky stuff. Just saying. And and the other is what they you know the the way they found out this found out about this was by looking in in their own corporate or their. Uh, well, their banking network was by looking for indicators that had been found in the compromise of their corporate challenge site, and and to me, the, one of the interesting implications is, you know, that traffic was there to find all along. They just didn't know to look for it. So as soon as they started looking for presumably certain IP addresses, uh, you know, sure enough that it, it showed up. So we don't know, you know, what kind of uh, command and control channel it was whether it was it irc or was it you know gmail draft documents or, or something else we we don't really have that kind of uh of information but it it does point out that you know a lot, lot of this stuff is there for the finding yeah i would agree and I, I once again here's another major breach that was found by a third party so we are clearly failing to do breach detection in our major enterprises to do well. And you're right. The, these things are, are we, we don't know exactly what happened on that original compromise. I would bet it might have been a phishing attack, but it's really tough to know based on the information we have. But once again, yeah, we, we are just not catching this stuff until some third party is pointing it out to us, and that's not good. No. You know, at the same time, though, I, I, uh, I had read the book, The Signal and the Noise, by, and I know we've talked about this a couple times in the past, uh, by Nate Silver. And one of, the, one of the points he brings up is that, in retrospect, the signal always looks really clear. And, you know, it, it, whereas before you are aware that something's going bad is going on, it's just a bunch of unrelated noise. But once, once the bad thing happens and you go back and look in retrospect, it all becomes clear. But, um, you know, I, I think that's fair. I guess the point I would make is clearly prevention is failing. Yes. So are we shifting as an industry to focus more on breach detection and breach containment? Um, now, I'm not saying that's trivial. I'm not saying that's easy. But it seems like that's where we should be spending more of our time and money and energy. Agreed. Yeah, I, I definitely think in general we have that that mix wrong. So, anyhow, moving on to our next story. This one comes from SC Magazine. The title is "Deloitte Releases Paper on Vetting Leaks, Avoiding Costly Hoax." 
And I wanted to throw this one in here because I see this happen quite a lot where, uh, you know, some hacktivist group, usually it's a hacktivist group, will uh, will release something on Pastebin. And, you know, usually it's a, uh, lately the, the, the MO has been they'll release a couple of thousand what looks like usernames and passwords from a database. And then they'll, uh, you know, they'll offer to release the rest of it for a Bitcoin or two. And, uh, you know, honestly, I suspect, I guess I've, I've grown really cynical in my old age. And uh, I, I have to wonder how many times that is actually, that data is actually from whence it is claimed to be. And I think that the problem is exactly what this paper is intending to solve or help solve, right? It doesn't give you a foolproof solution, but... How do you, you know, how do you quickly determine if something is, that's purported to be a, a data leak from your website is, in fact, you know, a, a legitimate leak from your website? And so this, um, this paper goes through some kind of in a flowchart format, some things you can do pretty quickly. And I, I also noticed you can, for the most part, actually do it on a third-party site, too. There, there didn't seem to be on most of their uh, their checks in quotes uh, a need to have specific access to the you know the underlying application. You could do this as a as an outsider. So uh, I thought that was was pretty worthwhile to read, especially for those of us who you know who, who work in an industry where this could possibly uh, be something we would have to deal with. Yeah, I think the author makes a lot of sense, and there's a lot of good stuff in here, and I think the vast majority of the industry will ignore it. Yep. <laughs> some of it is common sense. Some of it is uh, you know, a really good way to vet if this is new, if this is real. Uh, I think it's worth putting out there. I think the vast majority of the media will absolutely disregard it. Uh, I, I think you're right. Uh, and, and by the way, I which, would... Which I, gives me a sad, by the way. I'm not happy about that. I just... <laughs> I, I will say n- none of what's uh, presented here is, you know, like total aha, never thought of that kind of thing before. But it's a consolidation of sensible things uh, that, that you might do to to verify whether something is, in fact, from a you know, particular site or not. So, uh, but yeah, I, I think one one of the obvious audiences to this is the media, right? This was not only for companies to, to go and, uh, as you mentioned, verify their own breaches, but also for the media. So before before the media runs off and reports that Brian Krebs's uh, website got hacked and his database was on Pastebin, maybe they could have followed you know, what's in this document and not look so dumb. But then who would we make fun of? And feel all smug and superior. That's a good question. I don't know. We'll work on that. Okay. So, moving on, our next story comes from Dark Reading. And uh, I, I usually don't talk about things like Drupal because it's, you know, it's like uh, it's like picking on a kid, you know. It's just... It's just not fair. So, uh, so the story here, uh, title is Drupal attacks start within hours of patch release. To me, the more interesting point here is the, 
you know, the, the story that Drupal had this really horrible uh, zero day, or, you know, vulnerability released. It was an SQL injection. It essentially could allow an attacker to do whatever they wanted uh, with with your website. And apparently, shortly after disclosure of the vulnerability, uh, there was some activity, and I would assume a lot of it was automated, or most of it was automated, to leverage that vulnerability and compromise these sites. And so, uh, so subsequently, the Drupal, the the people at Drupal have come out and said, basically, if you haven't, if you didn't patch within uh, a couple of hours after the vulnerability disclosure, you're probably owned. And, uh, you know, there's some, in the industry, there's some debate about exactly how many Drupal sites there are, but it's, um, it's somewhere between one in seven million, as I understand it. So that's potentially, you know, who knows how many of those were not patched in time. I'm going to guess quite a few. But uh, that doesn't sound very good. To me, again, the, the, the bigger problem here is whether it's, let's say, Heartbleed, maybe not so much Heartbleed, but certainly Shellshock. One of the things we have to think about when when uh you know when some significant vulnerability comes out that's trivial to exploit we have to make a decision you know we're if we if we patch and move on we're kind of implicitly saying we don't think the server got compromised and you know that maybe that's right and maybe that's wrong but i think we have to be aware that we are in fact making a decision yeah, that's a you know a great point. And to further extend that point, we're also making the assumption that there's no zero days out there. No, oh, that's a, right. that's a good point, right? Which we know there and, are, right? I mean, that's... right. Um, but you know, when we see a widespread attack against a known exploit, uh, and there is a patch, that patch window exists. I think you make a really good point. How do you know? How do you verify? How do you trust? And and do you have anything in place that monitors for that sort of breach uh, detection down the line, uh, which could be months later potentially? Um, yeah, I think that to to me the the question becomes, what makes you comfortable that your site or your server or system application isn't compromised? Is it because uh, you have some other instrumentation that you feel very confident would you would detect some anomalous activity, you know, or is it that you have some other, you know, system level controls that you feel very confident would either prevent or, or, or detect that, you know, some kind of local intruder activity, you know, it, or if you don't have any of that and you're just, you're just hoping and praying, you know, that maybe it's a time to take a step back and think about that. Well, the other thing I was thinking about, and I think you make a lot of good points here, the other thing I was thinking about when I was reading this and taking some notes is, in a situation like this, we definitely have a problem, especially, I would say, well, I almost said it's worse with open source because you could actually look at the patch source code and see exactly what's being patched. But it's pretty trivial to reverse engineer and decompile a compiled patch for closed source and figure out uh, what's being patched. 
And the bad guys are very good at looking at that and figuring out what to attack and going and figuring out that attack pretty quickly. So we've, we, you know, we've talked about this before. You've got this window of time, depending on how widespread these attacks are, how automated, you know, are they building bots, that sort of thing. But we also default to the concept that our only possible reaction is a patch. And that's not necessarily true. There's other things we can do, potentially, depending on what it is that we're trying to mitigate against. Uh, depending on, you know, if it's web front end, if it's, you know, it's all about reducing the attack. It's, it's, let me back that up. Over. It's, it's all about the basics again, right? Reducing the attack surface, having layered defenses, understanding these attacks how they're conducted, what layers of defense you have in place that might have the ability to mitigate that attack, and deploying the appropriate mitigation for the situation. And what I see over and over again is organizations, that thought process, uh, frankly, takes a lot of multidiscipline knowledge and not being stuck in a queue of ticket after ticket after ticket being generated by your SIM that needs to be going worked. Um, so it really, to me, points out that when these things are happening, we have these default reactions, but a very wise organization would have a very sharp individual who doesn't necessarily get down in the weeds in instant response, but can actually think out of the box a little bit without a ton of stress and pressure on them to come up with alternatives to mitigating. Mm-hmm. Um, long way of saying that. Exploratory but. information security. Well, <laughs> you know, it's just, I just see so many security guys and the security ops groups, and those, they're just running so hard. I don't know that they have the time to really say, all right, let's stop and think about this for a minute, right? Yep. You're right. Um, and, you know, you can go back to Apollo 13 as an excellent example of, you know, in the movie, they've got that scene where they put a bunch of smart guys in the room and say, this is the problem. These are the tools we have. Give me some options. And if you can break people away during incidents and give them that freedom to go think out of the box and be creative, uh, I, I think we can come up with more innovative defenses in these situations. The other thing I wanted to say was this may be an interesting use case for uh, the many, many, many threat intelligence services that are now hawking themselves out there. Knowing when a widespread attack against an infrastructure item or a commonly deployed item is going on is definitely helpful. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that is something that I think is important too, that you've got visibility into, okay, I've got WordPress and uh, I happen to be running this plugin, which just got you know, popped as vulnerable, there's a patch out there, uh, how often is this being attacked? Right, that's something I want to know. Yeah, I think the other, just to carry on that thought, I think the other one of the other bits of value potentially, and I'm definitely still not a big fan of threat intelligence, but but I'll... Uh, yeah, me either. But, I was trying to be generous, right? But, but uh, <laughs> you know... It, there's a there's a def, a relatively limited, especially if if the attack is audit is as automated as we think in this particular case it it was, you know they're they're probably dropping a relatively small num one of a relatively small number of things on the system. So if your threat intelligence provider is able to give you some kinds of indicators of compromise to look for in the wake of that, you know, hey that that is something that can help you out too. 
but you know, again, we all know that's not a you know that's not a, a definitive solution. Uh, yeah. So. And and threat intelligence means so many different things, right? A lot of people. Yep. Hey, here's a bunch of IP addresses that did bad stuff. Well, that doesn't really <laughs> help me, right? So, so it's a blacklist, right? Right. You know what? In this particular case, I'm using threat intelligence in a very vague, large, yep. ten thousand foot term to mean what the hell is going on in the industry right now? Absolutely. Yep. Um, I I think the other. You know, one of the other things I was thinking of, and, and I, this isn't going to be applicable to probably even most companies, but I I still love the the idea of what Netflix does with its Chaos Monkey, and yeah, you know, I, and and I, and I just wonder if there's some option or is, you know some ability to 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 wrap that concept into rapid incident response kind of of a, a process. So anyhow. No, I agree with you. I think about that a lot, uh, and I think it very much applies. Uh, anytime that we're dealing with any of these things, being able to take a, a system offline and having some sort of DR capability or business continuity, uh, of course, they're often running the exact same system. So um, there's definitely something there, right? There's a tweak on the concept of Chaos Monkey that I think can definitely apply to security, but I haven't quite gotten my brain around it fully enough. Um, but I really do love that concept. Well, you know, I guess one one thing is is to uh, you know, in, in the case of a web server, for sure, if you're running Drupal, you know, if you, if you have all that virtualized, conceivably, it's ephemeral. You patch, you know, you you patch a clone, you bring it live, you destroy the production one, and now you're not you know now you're you're back up and running. You have a, a known good image and. Bing, bang, boom! There you go. I just think there's there's some, especially nowadays with a lot of the you know the cloud virtualization, cloning, whatnot. There's a lot of options. Maybe not in every particular use case, but I think there's a lot of of new options available to people if they're willing to be creative. So anyhow. And for those who don't know about Chaos Monkey, certainly you can Google it. But the concept, and I might butcher this a bit is it's code that randomly kills processes and kills virtual machines within the Amazon web services group uh, that basically Netflix uses. So the concept is to build resilient architecture that is self-healing and self-surviving knowing that at any moment, any one piece of that architecture could be uh, basically in essence turned off. Yep. It it, uh, it really changes the way I think you you uh, you develop systems when you know that something is going to be killing it or or messing with it in some way. So anyhow, moving on to our next story. This is another follow up. It comes from BankInfoSecurity.com. The title is Home Depot breach cost credit union sixty million dollars uh, with seven point two million credit union cards affected. Uh, so we've talked quite a lot lately about you know is there what is the real impact to these mega breaches and you know one of the one of the points that came up i think on the last show is there you know relative to the number of cards that are being stolen there isn't a lot of fraud being carried out you know because because the the anti fraud systems in in the banks and card brands are are pretty good but 
you know, one of the one of the things I think that gets sometimes overlooked is uh, the the expenses that these banks have to bear, right? So in the case of these credit unions, uh, they've had to reissue 7.2 million cards at a cost of about eight dollars a card, and uh, they they claim that this group of I think 835 credit unions that were were uh, pulled by the uh, CUNA said said that they spent a total of sixty million dollars responding to this breach, and and that's kind of an interesting business relationship because you know in this particular case the banks and Home Depot have no relationship at all, and and so you know something that Home Depot did or did not do is able to you know <laughs> cause sixty million dollars in uh, is effectively in damages to these banks or these credit unions and i find that really a, a very interesting uh, thing so uh, i suspect given you know given the uh, the number of uh you know number of these mega breaches that that are happening that this situation probably isn't going to perpetuate for much longer and i just i don't know where it's going to go but um I got to imagine that the banks are are, are really uh, hiring some lobbyists these days. Yeah, I, you know this lacks some context, right? I would be very curious of the sixty million. How does that compare to the average annual fraud rate and fraud costs these guys are dealing with? Is this a blip on the radar? Is this a massive speed bump? You know, is this existential in the cost? How much is this truly to this group of organizations is one thing I'd be curious about. Um, at, at the end of the day, they know that there's going to be a level of fraud and a level of shrink associated with the type of uh, credit card system that we use today. They're willing to accept that because of the convenience for the users. That's the trade-off between the security and the convenience. So when do we get to that point where that shrink level has now risen to a point where they feel that moving to a less convenient system potentially and the cost involved in the friction of using that is worth it. I think that's, that's a really, I mean, that is one of the really important questions, but I would say, I think the other, the other reality, although I think they're moving away from it is that there's a, there's a disconnect between the number again, the number of cards that are that are stolen, and the number that are you know, that, that have fraudulent charges, and I think what we have is a situation like I I, I would almost guarantee you that the seven point two million cards that they apparently replaced didn't all have fraudulent charges on them. Oh, certainly, we know that we know that for a fact. And and so I guess my 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 point is that it's. It's kind of asymmetric because they're, you know, they're having to replace cards that don't have fraudulent, you know, fraud charges against them. So it's not, you know, it's not like the normal, uh, you know, and I, I guess I don't have some context here, so I'm speaking out of turn. But I, th- I would imagine that in a in a in a normal year without all of these large retailer breaches, a lot of the card fraud comes from skimmers and 
things like that, where the card is objectively stolen and used, and you know, and and there aren't there aren't just stacks and stacks of cards being stolen that have to all be all be replaced at the same time, like it's happening now. So I think it's to me, it seems like it's probably a different situation. But again, I I don't I don't know. I would imagine you know, sixty million bucks is probably a lot of money for a credit union. Well, it's a group of credit unions. Yeah, a group of credit unions, sure. Right. So we don't know if that's spread out over 20, 50, 80, 500, 1,000, 5,000. But by the way, it was, it was, that's, that amount is twice what it cost uh, them for Target. Yeah, that is interesting. I was curious about that. Uh, somewhat adjacent to the story is later <laughs> in the article, the Retail Federation and uh, starts getting real snarky. They start sort of lobbing some grenades at each other. The the credit union uh, associations and the retail associations start really pointing fingers. Uh, so that's going to get interesting. Yeah, the, re- the retailers are uh, retail associations are basically saying, "Hey, how come how come we have all of these you know these other groups you know that that are willing to work with us like banks and you know and other retailers." But you credit unions won't come to the party with us. So, and, and you know, in the, on the other hand, the credit unions are saying, you know, you guys are killing us. You're you're, you're killing our business. You're not you're not operating in a secure manner, and it's causing us uh, boatloads of money. So, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah. So, uh, moving on to our. Next and final story. This one also comes from uh, bankinfosecurity.com, and the title is Phishing Attack Leads to Title Firm Breach. I am shocked. I know. I know. So this this sounds very similar to a story we talked about last week, where I think it was a physician, if I'm not mistaken, who had his uh, email, uh, email account breached. In uh, in that case, they, there were some PHI stolen. In this case, apparently, a number of Fidelity National Financials employees were fished, and their email credentials to their third-party hosted email system were compromised. And you know, it, it, it's, at first, I I shook my fist in the air and I said, "Why do these people have?" you know, bank account numbers and social security numbers and credit card numbers and driver's license numbers in their email. But then I, I realized, you know, this is a, their mortgage processor. And, you know, I know when I went, you know, I've bought a house several times now and sold house several times now. And you're always sending, scanning crap and send, sending emails to, uh, you know, to mortgage, to the mortgage company. So that's, I guess, not surprising. Um, but before you get off that point, there are secure ways to send it, but it's a pain in the ass, and it would confuse non-technical people. So Absolutely. once again, it's a risk that's accepted for the convenience to do business. Yeah, and it, you know it's interesting though that, that that it's the company is accepting that risk on behalf of their their customers, so. and the customers are not demanding a secure transfer method. That's true. That's very right? true. So at some point. Who's at fault there? Yep. Right? I mean, do we all have to be protected from ourselves by the government? <laughs> oh, 
your libertarianism is showing. Well, we are on webcam. Yep. And I'm not wearing any pants. I know. I'm trying not to look. So, uh, so, so anyhow, you know, this is a, I guess the parable here is think about how and where your confidential information is sitting in your environment and what kinds of things you do or don't do uh, to protect it. And, you know, in, in, in this case, it's kind of interesting. Uh, after, in the wake of this breach, you know, when their chief compliance officer who wrote the, wrote the letter to the unnamed number of impacted customers, uh, basically said, you know, we're, we're taking, we're taking steps to make sure that doesn't happen again. And I think if you read between the lines, that probably means they're turning on two-factor authentication to their Gmail hosted account or Office 365 hosted account. Um, so, uh, you know, so I guess there's that. Which is great, except then it breaks everybody's mobile access. Yep, well. And then executives will whine. I don't know what to tell them <laughs> at that point. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, it, I'm just kind of beating on that drum of convenience versus security. Today. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, th- I think, don't they, uh, I think, I know at least in Google, I'm not sure about Office 365. I think Google lets you set up a, a an OAuth token so you're when you set mm-hmm. up your phone, you're you're if you have even if you have two factor, you you're basically authenticating with an OAuth token. Yeah, you've got a couple options too. You can actually also set up um, specific, unique one-time passwords. Not one time. That's not true. Unique password per device. Right. Yep. Um, that's static, which is kind of a, a hybrid approach. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you've got to you know, help the salespeople and execs and non-technical people through that setup process. And it may be the right thing to do, but it's something that I think a lot of folks would go, eh, it's too much pain. I just want my iPad to work. <laughs> and, right, we we circle back around to this problem. And and I'm not saying they're right or wrong. I'm saying that these are the decisions companies are making every day. And sometimes they're the right decision for whatever it is they need to do. So it's not just about don't do this. It's stupid. It's about understanding you're accepting this risk. Yep. Yep. And then is there a way to still allow this service demanded by the users and still monitor for fraudulent activity uh, without making it too inconvenient, you know, in a passive manner in some way. Right. Right. And uh, your Fidelity National Financial would definitely like their customers to know that even though their record, you know, all their information was completely owned, that the attackers did not penetrate the company's network. So I guess there's that. Yay, cloud! And then, uh, and then the other thing is, uh, what did they offer their impacted customers? What would that uh, be? Credit monitoring. Oh my gosh! Yes, credit monitoring. I now have 87 different credit monitoring services going. Although, although I will say in this particular case, it's probably more useful than in many of the other kinds of cases because, you know, they're apparently they got your social security number, your address, your name, your driver's license number. And this is something I harped on a long, long time ago and a listener 
was kind enough to educate me on. I used to say it would be nice if we could change our social security number when it's been compromised, but I was under the impression there was no way to do that. However, you can indeed yep. file and apply for a replacement social security number, but it is a massive pain in the ass. Uh, so not viable for most folks. So I go back to now I say an easy way to update your social security number. Uh, Over the web. Happen. Over the web. Point and click. That'd be cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, via Telnet, I think. There should be a Telnet service. Yes. You, know, you just Telnet in. Yes. That's right. You have to play, you have to play a game of Zork to get to the right They could just add that functionality to healthcare.gov, don't you think? Uh, oh boy, yep, I went there. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, that was uh, that was that story. Uh, um, uh, you know, again, I think it's one of those deals where it's easy to armchair quarterback. Yeah, you know their uh, their decision to not use two factor. Uh, uh, you know, I think that they're depending on the service that you're using, it's probably more difficult or easier to implement on different devices. Um, so, you know, I look, I'd say look around and see what's available to you. Um, it's becoming, I, you know, one of the things that when I read this story, one of the long, long time ago, uh, I worked for a, I worked for a COO and, uh, uh, he was a very, a vehement opponent to letting people keep email. Uh, you know, he, he was pretty draconian. He actually, I was, I was running IT for the company at the time and he, it was like a thousand people and he wanted to, you know, basically, uh, imp- impose pretty draconian retention restrictions. Uh, you know, it's like 30 days and your email is, is gone. You know, it's, it's, uh, just a, a, a very draconian, uh, uh, view on things. And and his point was, it's when you have that email hanging around, it's a liability. You know, it's it's a liability from the perspective that, and he, his view was more from a legal discovery perspective. But you know, it's I, I think obviously I don't. There's no context about you know ex- what was hanging out in these people's inboxes, but. You know, uh, if it's anything like most people, it's probably every email they've ever gotten. And uh, you know, if you if you hang on to it, it is, you know, it's it's a liability. It's a potential liability. So you need to, you know, I, th- I would encourage people to think about email and other things in the context of data retention requirements. And do you really want that stuff hanging out, uh, you know, into perpetuity, kind of? sitting around waiting to be potentially stolen. So that's, um, you know, I guess my, my parting thought for the day. Indeed. I feel like, you know, we don't have a lot of energy on this show, so I apologize if anyone's like, wow, these guys seem down. Jerry's on some good painkiller meds. I'm just feeling rough today, I guess. But we'll be back. We'll bounce back. That's right. We'll be pumped. It's a new week next week, <laughs> yeah, and you know maybe I'll have uh, uh, maybe my hand will not be hurting so much. Anyhow, uh, as as we mentioned at the beginning, we're, we really appreciate everyone's time listening to the podcast. If you have any 
thoughts or feedback, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. You can find links to all the stories we talk about on this episode and all uh, the back episodes on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And for the record, right now Jerry has more followers than I do, so I think we should try to fix that. (laughs) Yes, yes. And by fix that, he means I should have many more. Hey, uh, no, no. I hey, I post about interesting aviation stuff. You well, I I will space stuff. I I post funnier stuff. And and occasionally infosex stuff. Yep. Anyhow, cat say, pictures. Say say, say good night, Gracie. <laughs> good night, Gracie. All right. Catch y'all later. Take care. Watch out for that cyber diabetes and cyber Ebola. <laughs> Bye. You're hitting that that stage in life finally, huh? I am. I'm like Bobby Brady. I'm going through changes. <laughs> I was going to say something meaningful and I lost it. I'm sorry.